0: So he arose and he we went to Zarephath. And when he had come to the gate of the city, behold, a widow <clears throat> there was, was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, Please give me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please, please bring a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As Yahweh, notice your God lives, not her God, As Yahweh your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in a bowl, and a little oil in a jar, and behold, I am gathering a few sticks, that I may go in and prepare it for me and my son, that we may eat it, and then die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as I have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first. And bring it out to me, and afterward you may make one for yourself and for your sons. So Elijah's built an element of faith in this whole issue for her. For thus says Yahweh, God of Israel The bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be emptied until the day that Yahweh sends rain on the face of the earth. So when she did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days, the bowl of flour was not exhausted, Excuse me. nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken through Elijah. Now, what I need you to understand about that is that uh, this is a story of a man of God who was preaching to the people of God who would not listen to him. And when he needed help, he sent him out of Israel to a place called Sidon to a Gentile widow so that that widow could be used of God basically to keep him alive and her family alive. Jesus knows this as a very significant account in uh, his ministry. And right on the heels of coming out of the wilderness and attempting to preach in synagogues everywhere, and he was being well-spoken of, uh, Jesus went to his hometown. Things did not go very well in his hometown. So in Luke chapter 4 and verse 16, it says this. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been uh, brought up, and was as his custom, he entered into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of Yahweh. And he closed the book, or he rolled up the scroll, and he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. He would have sat in what's called the seat of Moses at the front of the synagogue where the word of God went forth. All the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Notice, has been. And all were speaking well of him and wondering of these gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever you have done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Now we are to read that and understand that Jesus is saying these people don't believe him and are not believing in him and are rejecting him, despite the the way that he preaches and the words that are falling out of his lips that are gracious. And so Jesus in verse 24 responds and he said, truly I say to you, No prophet, so he's calling himself a prophet as well, is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, when a great famine came over the land. And yet Elijah was sent, notice, to none of them, none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage when they heard these things. What Jesus was saying is that you are rejecting the word of God. You're rejecting the Messiah. You're rejecting me. I just told you these things are being fulfilled right now in your sight. And you're starting to say things that show you don't believe. Then he told them a couple of true stories out of the Old Testament where the people of Israel would not listen because of the hardness of their hearts, because of their wayward ways. They're not wanting to follow the God of all the earth who brought them up out of Egypt and gave them a land flowing with milk and honey. They don't want to listen to any of that. And they rejected Jesus Christ. So he told two stories. One was about a great prophet. Everybody knew him. And he had been sent not to a widow of Israel, a prophet of Yahweh, sent out of the country to a different widow. And God cared for her. Then he told another story about a prophet they all knew, Elijah, and I mean, sorry, Elisha. And Naaman comes looking for help from leprosy. And Jesus said, it's not like Israel wasn't full to the brim with people that needed help. It was. And yet God sent this person To his prophet and this pagan, this outsider was saved and healed. And the people of Israel were not. Those are fighting words to them. They're angry. How dare you say that our God would choose dirty dog Gentiles over us. And so the people in the synagogue in verse 28 were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city. Not, not good enough to just run him out of the synagogue. They drove him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which the city had been built in order to throw him down from the cliff. Uh, Noel and I got to go and stand on what looked to be the highest cliff in the city when we were there and uh, thought about this story. In fact, somebody read it for us. And this is where Jesus, <laughs> he was. You see what the next verse says? But passing through their midst, he went his way. Can you imagine a mob has a hold of you, they're taking you up to this precipice in the town and they're going to throw you off to kill you, and Jesus just simply turns and walks through their midst and he goes free, because it wasn't his time to die, certainly not at their hands, and the whole thing points to this whole issue that we're talking about. Jesus' point is that the prophet has no honor in his hometown. Matthew is using the same truth when he recounts the faith of the Magi that came from the east to visit the Christ child. The Magi were Gentiles, no question about it. They were from a great distance. And uh, they are going to do what no one in Israel is willing to do, that is, find and worship Yeshua, the king, the one who's going to save the people from their sins. Find and worship him. The only others who showed spiritual insight was a group of uneducated shepherds out on a lowly hill one night, and two old people in the temple that had a good reputation, but apparently no one listened to a word that they said. No one cared about what they were talking about when they had the child in their hands. Where is the rest of the nation? Where are the religious leaders of Judaism at least? Bethlehem, at at the most, is six miles southwest, that's it good road going down there and not a one of them made the trip to see somebody at least to say maybe this is the christ child maybe this is yeshua that god is sending nobody comes it's an indictment on the people of god when i look at our nation and i look at the foundation that we have had when i look at all the crusades that billy graham did not all in america of course but 417 crusades I remember sitting there and watching hundreds and hundreds of people in 1965, not, not just the, prayer, but the people that are prayer partners that go and they grab somebody who comes down and lead them to Christ. Those people all went first. Hundreds of people coming down. Every time I watched a Crusade of His on TV, hundreds of people, thousands of people responded. And we had this great movement across the world of people coming to Christ. And today I want to know, where are they? And the answer is, God has no grandchildren, only children. Where's the great evangelist for today? We haven't got one. Franklin Graham never rose to the status of his father and wasn't called to do what his father did. He's doing a wonderful work in the world. But where is our spiritual leader like Billy Graham? Where is somebody who is talking for us across the world? We don't have one, not anymore. I've been praying that God would raise one up for years. He hasn't seen fit to do that yet. Well, in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 2, it says this, Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now, he's already gone to the chief priests, the elders, and said, Where is this king supposed to be born? They knew exactly. Uh, Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. He's going to be born there. And so he knew that, and he calls a secret meeting. In verse 8, he sent them to Bethlehem, and he said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. That's one of those lies that somebody said that's in the Bible for us to read about. Herod's lying through his teeth. He has no intention of worshiping the child. He has every intention of slaughtering the child. After hearing the king... They went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the, Christ, where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because God's back leading the program. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, gifts of frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country another way. We had a few shepherds that sort of worshiped Jesus when he was born. Now we have Gentiles who have come a great distance. All right, some of you came further than others this morning to get to our church. Nobody went eight or nine hundred miles to come and worship Jesus like these guys did. Right up there in Jerusalem, about at the most six miles away, there is a city full of priests and Levites and scribes and those who say they love God. And what they are up there is troubled, like Herod is troubled to hear news of a king. Nobody is recorded as going down to see what God is doing. You came here because at some point in your life you were interested to see what God was doing with you. And you realize that he was opening your heart to receive salvation. You realize that he cared about you and he loved you and he wanted you to be one of his children. And you you followed that call and you became one of his. And you came here to worship him. You came here to love him. You probably gave an offering out back there uh, as you come in the church because you want to support ministry. And that's what the Magi did. They're Gentiles just like we are. And God has used the church full of Gentiles to make Israel jealous, but he hasn't given up on Israel. Uh, Romans 10 is very, very uh, clear about that. I'm sorry, Romans 11, uh, verse 25, is very, very clear about that. The Jews are not forsaken by God. He will reach out to them again. And at the end of the tribulation, it says, all of Israel will see him riding out of heaven. You and I will be in that procession, and all Israel will turn their hearts, and they will mourn because they recognize we're the ones that put nails in his hands on a cross. And now he's our king. Well, in verses 7 and 8, Herod sets in motion his plan to oppose Christ using lies and murder. He did not tell them that he had no intention of worshiping. He said, I, have, I am going to worship. He did not tell them that I'm going to kill that child. Uh, that he, he kept that to himself. It's a secret meeting. Our magi have come to Jerusalem to look for the person the star had indicated was the king of the Jews. Either the star led them to the city of Jerusalem, or some postulate that the star set them on the course to the capital of the city, but didn't, wasn't there the whole time, uh, or uh, some of them uh, said that uh, they, the star went to Jerusalem on purpose, and that's where it disappeared, then it reappeared. Well, we don't know for sure. But what we do know is that they followed a star, whether it was always there or not always there. They went to Jerusalem to find the king. And then when they were going to Bethlehem, which is funny because now they know where he's at. He's in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is no big deal. It's not that big. They could find this child on their own, but God sends the star. So we don't know all those events exactly, but we do know that. And we do know for sure that it was God's plan for them to go to Jerusalem and announce who they were looking for well let's just march a bunch of uh, very wise uh, individual gentiles into the city get get a hearing with the king and everybody finds out what they're looking for and we respond by being troubled by it i'm sure there were millions and millions of people who would not set foot in a stadium to hear a preacher some went for the novelty of it, but others said, I am not subjecting myself to that. And these people are not subjecting themselves to their own king. In effect, this, kind, uh, this is kind of like Gentiles giving Israel the chance to welcome the living hope of their own religion as a nation. And they not only disregard the invitation, they're a little bit troubled by it. In verse 7, Herod is armed with the information that the Magi require. I know where the king's going to be born, my scribes told me. So he calls a secret meeting. He doesn't want people to hear what's going on here. His goal is to find out in detail exactly when did this star appear because he wants to find out in detail how old would this kid be by now. So his wise men get together with him after this. They say the star appeared here. This kid could be everywhere from, you know, a month old To probably two years old so that's that's our window a month to two years anyone to find out that for that reason his thinking would be i've got to pinpoint the age of this child because i'm going to kill him we're not told whether or not the magi started to have suspicions about the king and what he said is his true intention we don't know his motives in that secret meeting except what has been told us they got information they left we also are kept from knowing what this star really was. One commentator believes that it was the Shekinah glory of God that appeared in the sky. We, we don't know what it was. We don't know if it was the Shekinah glory of God. We don't know if it was a real star. We don't know uh, anything except it was described, and the Greek text says it's a star. The word for star in Greek is aster, aster, like in our Kansas state flag, at astra per aspera. In verse 8, he orders the Magi to go to Bethlehem. He's got, they've got Micah 5.2 now. They know where it is. They're traveling down the road. They'll find the child there. And he says, make very careful search for inqu- and inquiry about where the child is located. Before we strike the enemy, let's make it a surgical strike. Let's find out where the kid is. And when I send my sol- soldiers down there to kill him, we know exactly where to go. Maybe where the playground is around his house, you know. Or maybe where you know he might be going to some place with somebody else nearby. Find it. He wants them to go to Bethlehem to find the child. Report it. That's a command where the child is located. Well, then he lies about his motive. He claims that when he finds where the child is, he himself will come and worship the child. Somebody should have said, "Well, what's stopping you now?" when we get down there, it takes, you know, 15 minutes to find the kid uh, in the whole town. Let's find him, and you can go worship now. I think the wise men were wiser than that, and they suspected something's up here. It doesn't all add up. He had no intention of worshiping the Christ. Some people come to churches with no intention of worshiping Jesus, no intention of getting a relationship with Jesus Christ Uh, They come sometimes because it's the thing to do or that's what other people do. And they sit here and they listen to a message and think, why do you even like this stuff? It just makes no sense to me. I don't even like it. And they look at you that do like it and they're saying, what's going on here? Hopefully God would open their hearts to see the truth of the gospel. Remember the verse uh, 3 in this passage told us he was troubled by it all. Well, why wouldn't you be? You're the king. Now you're showing up and telling me a new king has been born? I'm the king, and he's going to keep it that way. Note also that Herod knows they intend to worship this child. It would have been interesting to know what other information the Magi had given Herod about the child, but that's all we know. Let us go and worship the child. Now wait a minute, he's a king and you're worshiping him? It's not like Herod isn't used to things that are going on with the Roman emperors where they call themselves gods and people worship them. And he probably thought, well, that's all this is. But that also means he's a little bit important, and so I need to kill him. These are not ignorant men on a vacation who are standing before King Herod. Look at all that they have gone through to come worship this child. This is a gargantuan effort. Did you know there's a passage in Isaiah that says that God is watching to see what you do on his holy day. Now back when Isaiah wrote that, that'd be the Sabbath. And God is watching from heaven to see what you choose to do, in our case, on Sunday morning. Do you choose to come and worship God with fellow believers? Or do you choose to go your own way with your own words and doing your own thing? And Isaiah chastises his people By saying there's something more important for me to do than worship God. I don't have time to go and worship God. It's too far away. It's too cold out. All right? The car might not make it. It's all the excuses that we use not to go out of our way to worship God. But God says he blesses the person. Who puts aside everything else in in their program that day. And they make God the program. They make God the one they're going to worship. These guys did not live six miles from the king. At the most, 900, at the least, 800 miles these guys came, probably by camel. <laughs> we don't know how many there were. In front of our bulletin says three. We can go with that. But there may be more, right? Uh, we don't know. Look what they did to go worship a king that couldn't even talk yet. Hadn't been established yet as even being royal blood. No one has really said there's something special about him, and yet they came prepared to worship. How did we come? Why did we come? God is always asking those questions and watching from heaven to see who cares more for him than for their own things that they'd be doing. Verses 9 and 10. I guess what I'm trying to say is we're supposed to learn something from these guys. Verses 9 and 10, the Lord the Lord leads the faithful to the place where they can worship his son. I think if a bunch of Levites would have taken out from Israel, from Jerusalem to see the child, God would not have stopped them. It would have brought joy to his heart. In verse 9, it seems that the star they had been brought by to Jerusalem must have stopped shining at some point. They start going towards Bethlehem, and it comes out again. It may have been that it hadn't gone before them any of the journey. They just saw the star through whatever means, or telescopes or something. I don't know what they had. They saw the star, and they said, that's where we need to go. It may be that it stopped guiding them and disappeared when they got to Jerusalem, uh, but it does disappear at some point. We just don't know when. Whatever the case, they head out for Bethlehem, which was only five to six miles from Jerusalem, slightly southwest of the city. The star that had started their journey is now back, and they can see it. And it leads them to exactly, actually, the very place where the child was living. So the star stops over that place, and there he is. Whatever the star was, it was miraculous. It was a special work of God. And I'm convinced that if we'd have seen it in those days, we'd have said, "That and that's a star. Anybody can see, it, that's a star. And I think that's why they called it a star. In verse 10, there's no doubt that this is a sign from God. Why? Because... There is no star that should be in that place. These people were astronomers. They had mapped the heavens. They knew what stars were where, at what time of the year they could see them. And this star didn't belong. It is different. There's something about this star. And, and it's something that they decided it's from God. And it's also not in the right place. And also, we've never seen a star travel north to south. And this, isn't, this one's heading south. Matthew tells us they saw the star and they were filled with intense joy. Note the star is traveling in a different direction. It doesn't even belong there. There's something different. God could have led him right to the place from the beginning, but he chose not to. He chose to stop and give the enemies of Jesus Christ a chance to react, and also his own people, whom he told years and years ago I'm sending a Messiah. There will be a star. And that was talked about in the Old Testament law. We looked at that last time. God could have sent Elijah to a widow in Israel, but he chose not to. Both of these because they don't have any faith. They are religious, but they're not righteous. They are devout, but they're not devoted to the right thing. There's a lack of faith in the people of God, anyone to prove it. They were spiritually lifeless. At the most, the potential Messiah was just six miles away. Why weren't rabbis, scribes, Levites, priests, and interested religious people burning up the road to get down to see the child? How do religious leaders get so blind to the truth that they're supposed to be serving? In our day, the answer is uh, multitudinous. One is popularity. If you're going to be popular, you have to tell people what they want to hear. And we are shot through with preachers in America and around the world that are telling people what they want to hear instead of what the book says. Uh, My latest uh, magazine from Dallas Theological Seminary is all about calling pastors back to preaching the word. What really disturbs me about that is you shouldn't have to write pastors that went there to be preaching the word, and yet we do have to send that. Well, then there's institutionalization, the church (coughs) <coughs> becomes excuse me becomes an <coughs> an institution. There is infiltration of the world into the church, and it's not very pure and holy anymore. There is insincerity in the hearts of preachers, and a multitude of other problems. So I can understand why nobody cares about the Christ Child, because as Jesus is going to point out in his ministry to the the farmers and the shopkeepers and those people, your leadership is completely corrupt. They are dead inside. They have nothing to offer you spiritually, even though they act like they do. And they're going to kill Jesus for saying that kind of stuff. But it was true. 11 to 12, the proper response to Messiah is to worship him and give gifts to him. We want to notice in that first part of verse 11, the Magi come to a house, no longer a stable. The word for child used here indicates a young child, but not necessarily an infant or a baby. Luke uses the Greek word brephos to describe an infant, a small child. Uh, Where we have here, paideon, a young child, but not an infant, so he's grown. The point is that they're no longer in the stable. They have a residence, a house. Joseph maybe rent it. For all I know, he built it. I don't know. Jesus could very well be almost two years old at this point. Herod knows that. When they see the child, they fall down and worship him. In the the last part of verse 11, they open their treasure box. You know, it's not only worth the trip. He's worth bringing some very, very expensive gifts to. And they give him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And these are likened to what the Gentiles are going to bring to Jesus Christ in his millennial kingdom. Uh, Let me me read one from Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 6. This is talking about uh, the end times. It's talking about the kingdom of God on earth in the millennium. And it says, if I get the right verse here, hang on. That doesn't seem right. But it's not, here we go, 60 verse 6. So this is future. A multitude of camels will cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. And they, the Gentiles from these places, will bring gold and frankincense and will also bear good news of the praise of Yahweh from their hometown. These are the right gifts to bring a king. Someone has pointed out that they brought gold because he is a king. Somebody else has pointed out they brought frankincense for deity because incense was used on certain sacrifices according to Leviticus 2, 1-2. to you, you would add frankincense to that. And they also brought myrrh because myrrh was used for embalming. So you see that? He is a king. He will give a sacrifice and he will die and there will be a, a, a short embalming. Frankincense and myrrh come from trees and bushes, respectively, and they were a gum-like substance like resin. Noel and I have a little uh, treasure box of myrrh at our house. If uh, you're ever there and you want to see it, we'll open it up and we'll let you see what's it, what it's like. It's probably not what you think, but it's myrrh. Joseph will need these gifts because he's about to flee to Egypt. He doesn't have a lot of money. He's been out of his hometown for two years. I don't think he's making a lot of money. How's he going to go to Egypt for as long as he's going to go unless God provides a way? And I think what God did was God showed up and said, you know, I'm shortly here going to be sending you to Egypt. And by the way, here's some gold, frankincense, and myrrh, valuable anywhere. Take it with you. Well, the Magi are warned not to let Herod know about the child. The word for warned here means to make known by divine injunction a divine message it means to return as uh, indicating a strategic withdrawal. In other words, make it quiet, make it fast. God said don't return to Herod with a report. The word for dream here in the Hebrew, I'm mean the, in the Greek text is anar. And it's only used in Matthew chapters 1, chapter 2, and chapter 27 and nowhere else in the Bible. Uh, these are special dreams that God did uh, for the Magi and then also for Joseph. They obeyed, and they leave a different way than they came without the king's knowledge. Get it? The king of the country told them, you come back and tell me where he's at. I want a report for whatever lie I'm going to give you, and I'll come worship him. Okay. These magi, Gentiles, that wasn't their king, but they're under his authority in his land, and the king said, stay, bring back word, but the father of the Messiah said, get out of here another way. So they left another way. No questions asked. That's just one more indication in the Bible. When the Bible tells us to do a certain thing and the government says don't do that thing, we have a right and a duty to obey God, not the government. If the government isn't telling us to do something wrong or, or uh, compromise our, our our message, our method, or our, our ministry, then that's a different story. But these men defied the most powerful king in the region, and slipped out of Bethlehem another way. Probably longer, probably not as easy, but they instantly did what God in heaven told them to do. God has revealed to Gentiles the coming of his Messiah, and they responded. With limited knowledge, the wise men offered genuine worship to Jesus. Dr. Craig Keener said, and I quote, many people reject Jesus' right to direct and rule their lives. You know what, uh, Jesus Christ, once we make Him our our Savior, needs to become our master, which means He will rule over us. He'll tell us right and wrong. He'll tell us what we should do and what we shouldn't do. And we come under a new master. Uh, And people don't want to to be under that master. They enjoy the master they're under. They deny they're under another master, but their master is Satan. He's the devil, and he's ruining their lives. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy their lives, and they, they don't want to report to Jesus. And many people reject his right. And Jesus does have a right to direct their rule in their lives. And if they don't believe that, then just wait till their judgment. And the Jews are not doing well. They are not going to do well the whole time Jesus is with them. And they will murder him. Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27, one of the commentators said, Matthew eleven twenty five 25 to 27, explains the divine initiative involved when anyone comes to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And what that says in 25 to 27 is, and at that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And then he goes on to say, verses 28 to 29, supplies Jesus' invitation for others to emulate his example, the example of the wise men. Come to me, all Jew and Gentile, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. The Bible teaches that God must open hearts so that they can see him and understand who he is and his grace. And we must make sure we are spiritually sensitive to the things that God is doing and respond in a way that honors God. So just a a few things here. Number one, every one of us, every person on earth, you must pick one of the only two responses that people can have toward Jesus Christ. There aren't three responses, there aren't four, there's no other choice. You're either on the side of the Gentile Magi's or you're on the side of Herod and his cronies. You either decide to accept Christ and to love Him and let His love come to you, or you're troubled by Him. You're disturbed by Him. You don't want Him to have a part of your life. There's only two choices. You must choose. Secondly, we must believe the Bible and take it for what it says. We must act on it. Here's some guys that are astronomers, they're studying the stars. Somebody, maybe Daniel, somebody got word to them about a little text in Numbers that talks about the star of this, this king. That happened hundreds of years before them. that that was predicted. And somebody got them to looking, and they saw it and said, let's go. They saw it and said, let's pursue this thing to the end. Let's take things worthy of a king with us. Let's worship him, because the text indicates he's more than just a man. We must believe and take it, the Bible and take it for what it says. We must act on it. And finally, faith in Jesus is the only correct response to have to Jesus. The only correct response. Friends, I don't think Jesus is interested in people trying to get their ticket into heaven and say, okay, I got my ticket, I'm not, not going to serve you. I'm not going to follow you. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm still the master of my own life. But yeah, when I die, I want to go to heaven. I'm not sure that if you can say that, that you really belong to Jesus. Jesus is to become the master of our life. And we use this book to say, this is what he said. This is what I will do. Let's learn from ancient wise men how to handle Jesus. Let's pray. I thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for what you are showing us in this text. And it's going to be a sad story about the people that were Jewish. Because multitudes of them will not bow to you. Multitudes of them will mock you on your cross someday from this little child. Multitudes will be glad that you were killed. But there are a few that were scattered around the cross who wept and knew what was going on, and you meant the world to them. In fact, you meant so much to the disciples, every single one of them laid down their life for you. And Lord, it's our intention to do no less. We pray for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.